So, here we are in our study through the Gospel of Mark, and we come today to uh, the verses that we just read together. And remember the, the background, Jesus had healed the, the paralytic man. They had, they had brought that man uh, to him in Capernaum, and they, they had lowered him down through the roof, and, and Jesus healed him. But remember when Jesus healed him, he said, um, not only... Uh, rise, uh, take up your bed and walk. But remember, he had said to him, uh, your sins are forgiven. And so this caused a, a bit of a stir with the religious leaders who can forgive sin, but God alone. And Jesus said to them, he, he said, the son of man has power on earth to forgive sin. Now, just keep that in mind because we're going to come back around to something uh, similar to that as we go into the teaching today. But so after that... We don't know exactly how much time transpired, but after that, we pick up the story, and here we find Jesus. He's there uh, by the sea, and people are, are gathered around to him, and he is now teaching the multitude. But we read here in these verses, uh, verse 14, as he passed by, he saw Levi the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office and said to him, follow me. So he arose and he followed him. So this man, Levi, we better know him as Matthew. And he is a tax collector, as we read here. He's there at the, uh, the tax booth. And... Jesus calls him to come follow him. Now, as we're, as we're going to see as we go on, this was, this was something quite uh, extraordinary. It was something quite surprising because Matthew, uh, in the eyes of the local religious leadership, Matthew was a person that was pretty much beyond uh, the scope of salvation. He, he, was, he was a person who, had, in, in their minds, he had basically sold out. He'd sold out to uh, the Romans, and therefore he had sold out to uh, paganism. He'd sold out to uh, the devil as far as uh, everybody was concerned. But this is the man that Jesus sees and calls to follow him. So his name is Levi, but his name is also Matthew. Uh, we know him, of course, as Matthew, more than Levi, because he's the, the writer of the first gospel in the New Testament canon. So when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, Matthew is this guy right here. And so Matthew in himself, really, he, he becomes a living illustration of the gospel. And as we're going to look today at the gospel, we, we just see with Matthew that he is, in his own experience, he really, um, he's manifesting what the gospel is about. And so we want to look at how uh, by, by Jesus calling him, and then the, the couple of incidents that follow that, that Mark records for us, how, how in this we see uh, the gospel kind of 
in, um, in action. And, and that's what I want to focus on today. You see, it's through the, through the activity of Jesus, we see the gospel being worked out here. Uh, it's, it's not only hearing the gospel, but we see what that looks like. We see what, what God intended uh, through the gospel. And so in these three stories, the one with Matthew, the, the second one with the, um, re- regarding the fasting, and then the third one regarding the Sabbath, we see the way that Jesus responds. We see what the gospel is essentially all about. It's about three things, grace, mercy and grace, which is two things, but I'm going to say they're one thing. Uh, mercy and grace, joy and freedom. So those, those are the things that we want to uh, consider here today. Now, in the, in the second incident over the, the fasting issue, uh, Jesus ends up saying to them, when they were complaining that, you know, how come your disciples aren't fasting? It, Jesus will end up saying to them um, that, that he, uh, he came to bring new wine. And, and that's the title of our message today, the new wine. Uh, Jesus is coming and he's doing something new. He's doing actually the very thing that God had said for centuries that he would do. But now Jesus is there. He's proclaiming the gospel. He's living out the gospel in his uh, relations with people. And for many people, of course, this was the most wonderful thing imaginable for somebody like Matthew was really, in, in a lot of ways, inconceivable that Matthew uh, could, could be saved. So for many people, it was the greatest thing ever, but for some people, it was an absolute stumbling block. How could this man be the Messiah, uh, considering the company that he keeps, considering his behavior? And so we're going to look at all of those things. But let's, let's begin with his uh, dealings here with Levi and looking at, at the gospel as um, mercy and grace. So, so Levi's a tax collector. And as far as anybody was concerned, he was a traitor. He was a traitor to his people and he was a traitor to God. So from the standpoint of the religious leaders, this guy was, as I said a moment ago, he, he was beyond salvation. He, this was the kind of person that you just, uh, you just pretty much had written him off. You know, when they, when they would go by that, that uh, tax collector's booth there along the, the road and they would see Matthew, they would just, you know, they just spit on him. It's just like you, you are the, you know, scum of the earth. Uh, that, that was the attitude that they had toward him. Uh, some of the rabbis gave room for the possibility that somebody like this could maybe be saved, but it was so, uh, the possibility was so slim, it was highly unlikely. But even if someone could, you know, repent of this, recognize that, oh, this, this is just completely wrong, and, and find forgiveness. Uh, they could never expect to have any kind of blessing upon their life. So that, that's the position of this man, Matthew. 
But notice how different Jesus is in his dealings with him. And, you know, we have to kind of use our imagination a little bit, but think, think about what this must have been like. Because Matthew, or, or Levi, uh, he would have been, to some degree, familiar with the ministry of Jesus. I mean, the ministry of Jesus was going on all around him. So he would have probably seen things from a distance. He would have heard stories. He would have, uh, he would have seen people that were touched by Jesus. And the one thing that he would have recognized was that Jesus was different than the other religious leaders because he was attracting people and welcoming people that they would not have anything whatsoever to do with. And so it could be even in the heart of Matthew, you know, perhaps as he was there as, as sort of a onlooker, Perhaps in his own heart, he was just wondering, like, I wonder if, if I could receive mercy. I wonder if this man, Jesus, has uh, any room for a person like me. And lo and behold, Jesus passes by and says to Matthew, follow me. And, you know, this is, it's what the Lord does so often, J.C. Ryle put it like this. He said, the Lord quite often chooses those who seem the least likely to do his will and furthest off from his kingdom. He draws them to himself with almighty power, breaks the chains of old habits and customs, makes them a new creation. And, And so Matthew is, you know, like I said, Matthew's kind of the, he's kind of the embodiment of the gospel. The, the one that the religious elite of the day would say, hopeless, don't even bother, this guy's destined for damnation. And yet Jesus not only calls him, but makes him an apostle and commissions him ultimately to write under the inspiration of the Spirit, the first gospel. That that's the gospel right there. That's the kind of thing that Jesus does. Now, as the story goes on, so Matthew is impacted, obviously, uh, by Jesus. So what does he do? Verse 15 says, now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house. So Levi decided, I'm going to invite Jesus over. I'm going to invite him over for dinner And I'm going to invite all my friends. Now notice who his friends are. That many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many and they followed him. So here's a house full of tax collectors and sinners. So sinners, what does that mean? Well, this is, these are the bad people. These are people that were considered by those that were self-righteous. These were the people that were considered um, unsavable. That's basically it. They they were considered the bad people. These are the people you stay away from. These are the people that you don't associate with. These are the people that you don't let your kids get near. You know, these are the bad people in town. And yet... Jesus is having a meal 
with them. And so the religious leaders, verse 16, when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Now, an important thing to recognize is um, eating in that culture was, it was more significant than eating in our culture is. And, and even to this very day, in the culture of the Middle East, to eat with somebody is a very uh, intimate kind of a thing. You, you just don't eat with anybody. You only eat with people that you are, are basically associating with in a, in, a, in a deep way. And so the fact that Jesus would eat with them, this was even worse in the, in the minds of the religious leaders. Because what Jesus was basically saying is that, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm associating with these people. Now, this is something that we need to know as we look at this picture. Jesus had direct, personal friendly contact and association with sinners. Note that. It was direct, it was personal, and it was friendly. Now, I'm sure it was friendly. I don't think Jesus was sitting in the house berating all of these people. Uh, they wouldn't have stuck around to listen to it. Uh, he's having friendly contact with them. Now, Jesus was among them, obviously not participating in or condoning their sin, nor was he necessarily renouncing their sin. He was among them showing and telling and inviting them into the life of God that he had come to bring them. You see, Jesus, sometimes I look at Jesus and I think, Lord, make me like that. <laughs> you know, make me like you. Sometimes I find myself in, in situations where I'm, I'm just seriously wondering, like, Lord, what would you do right here? How would you engage in this conversation or, you know, I, I want to be like you. And, and I think it's important for us to recognize what Jesus was like in the midst of these people. They were attracted to him. And so he, he obviously, there, there, was, there was something that was happening there where, like I said, I don't think he was renouncing their sin. I don't think he was looking around the room, pointing out the sins of people. The Pharisees did that all the time. I think what he was doing was he was showing them and telling them about something so much better that they would just simply long to have what he was offering and happily leave what they were presently engaged in if they could have that. And of course, that's what happened with Matthew. He just left the tax booth. That was it. It was over. Now, tax collectors in those days were, you know, they could, you could make a fair amount of money being a tax collector. And, uh, but all of that, Matthew saw in Jesus something so much more attractive. And this is one of the things that I think we as the people of God in the day that we're living in, we need to understand that, um, we, need, we need to understand how Jesus associated with people like this, and, and we need to learn to do that through the help of his spirit. So we were just in Scotland and, um, you know, like we always do when you land in a certain place, the first thing at the top of the priority list is to find the best coffee in town. So <laughs> we had to do that. And uh, right across from our hotel, we found this great little coffee place that was connected to a barbershop. And um, 
you know, it was a real like, you know, hipster kind of combination with skater combination with um, just, you know, dark. It, you know, it just had the, this, this uh, less than godly sort of a vibe about it. Uh, but that was the place to get the best coffee. So we landed and we met the guy that, you know, was running the coffee place and we struck up great conversations and ends up he has some relatives here in Southern California. And so before it was all said and done, you know, we got to invite him over and hope to have coffee with him here and, and all of this stuff. But, but seriously, I mean, this place was, uh, it, you know, it was really edgy. And so you've got, the week before we were there was the first gay pride parade in Dundee. So we came in on the, you know, the following week after that. So in the store, so it's a, you know, it's a, it's a coffee place, a barber shop, and, you know, they got all kinds of paraphernalia, shirts and skate apparel and, and all of that. But, but, you know, so there was a shirt that was um, a pride shirt. You know, you could buy a, a Dundee pride shirt there. There was, a, there was also a shirt that basically just said, um, you know, worship Satan and do whatever the H-E-L-L you want. And so that was kind of the mentality. And, but I'll tell you the other thing that was so ironic about it all, as, you know, we're sitting there having great conversations, telling them, you know, what we're doing and why we're there. And, you know, everybody's doing their little bit, you know, to share the gospel with them. As I was leaving the so I was leaving the store the, the last day before the, before the festival. I saw all of this, you know, kind of satanic paraphernalia. And then I saw a big old stack of invitations to Creation Fest. And I thought, yeah, this is, this is what you do here, you know. And then the next day, that guy came with his child to the event. And afterwards said, man, that was wow, that was way different than I thought it was going to be. And it, wow, you know, that was pretty amazing. Now, you know, we could have done a couple of things. We could have walked in the door and thought, okay, we got to get out of here because this place is way too dark. Or we could have walked in the door and rebuked them for having all of that stuff there. But, you know, we thought, well, why don't we just come in and let the light shine here? And, and that's what Jesus is doing. And that's what we, his people, are to do. They, the, the religious leaders, um, their question was, how is he eating and drinking with these tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus, when he heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance the New King James says, but you know, the newer translations all uh, do not add to repentance because they'd say the majority of texts do not have to repentance. And I think that maybe there's something there because Jesus was calling them to himself. And, and we have to, I think, again, that's something that we need to understand. You see, we are not to call people to live a better life necessarily. We're not to call people away from their particular uh, sin necessarily. We are to call people to Jesus. And guess what? Jesus does that. 
he calls, he deals with that stuff. And I think a lot of times we as Christians, and I have been just as guilty as anybody, you know, you're, you're focusing so much on a, a person's sin and you're, you're feeling responsible. Like I got to, you know, make sure they're convicted about the sin and I got to make sure they understand that they can't, you know, live in this sin or whatever. You know, Jesus is really good at doing that. I mean, that's, that's what he does. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. You know, when I became a Christian, nobody had to tell me I was a sinner. Guess what? I knew I was a sinner. I already knew it. And that's why I was seeking to be saved. God had convicted my heart. And, and Jesus here, he, he calls them to himself, basically. The, the, those that are healthy don't need a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous. And of course, the righteous here is a reference to the self-righteous because there are no truly righteous people. But I've not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. And he calls sinners to come to him. And that's what we as his people in our generation remember. The, the model that Jesus set for us. You know, that the idea, what would Jesus do? Well, this is what he did. He called people to himself. So we see, first of all, the gospel being manifested here in his dealing with Matthew. We see the, the mercy and the grace. But in the next story, we see that joy is a mark of the gospel. What happens in the next story? So the disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now, listen, the Pharisees' version of serving God was a joyless, heavy, burdensome experience. That's what it was. If you're going to serve God you better know that you're going to be miserable. That's what it was. Jesus even said, he said, the Pharisees, when they fast, he said, don't be like them. When they fast, what do they do? They disfigure their faces so that they look miserable to people. Now, the Pharisees are still alive and well today. There, there are many people that that is their presentation of what it is to serve God. It is a joyless, heavy, burdensome experience. Jesus said following him was like being part of a wedding party. That's the, that's the distinction that he's making here. It's like being part of a wedding party. What, what, is, what is a wedding uh, party like? Well, it's a place where there's lots of joy. You see, the gospel brings joy, and the Christian life is to be marked by joy. And that's what Jesus is saying to them. You know, they're, they're really just irritated that Jesus and his disciples are having so much fun. It's like, that, that you shouldn't be doing that. You should be fasting. And Jesus says, oh, you know, there's a time for that, but this is not the time. And we have to remember that the, primarily the, the Christian life is a life of joy. 
Do we know that? Do we understand that? And I think a lot of times we don't. And because we don't know that or experience that, because we sometimes don't even think that that's what it's supposed to be, not only are we miserable, but we in turn kind of, uh, we're broadcasting out a, a signal that, you know, if you want to follow and serve God, it's going to be a pretty rough and miserable road. But, you know, that's just the way it is. But to Jesus, it wasn't that way at all. It was the way of joy. And, and so Jesus tells them here, and we'll come back to this at the end, but this is where he tells them that what he's come to bring is new. So new wine must be put into new wineskins, he says. And, and what he's basically saying to them is that, of course, yes, there is a connection to the past, but what, what's happening now is independent of that. Jesus came in fulfillment of the, the prophecies and so forth. But these guys had so distorted and misunderstood that message and imposed that on the public, Jesus comes and says, no, this is, this is a new thing. God, God is doing a new thing here. And then in the third instance regarding the Sabbath, we see again something similar but what we see here is that the gospel is marked by freedom. So we have here the Sabbath. Now it happened, verse 23, that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, the Sabbath commandment, you can read it in the Old Testament. It is very simple. It says this, six days you shall work and on the seventh day you shall rest. Another version of it is you shall do no work on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day. That's what the Bible said. You know what these guys did with that? They took that one commandment and they wrote 40 chapters on the technicalities of the Sabbath. And so for them, these guys were breaking the Sabbath. Now remember, to break the Sabbath in Israel was punishable by death. So these guys were saying, your disciples ought to die because they're violating the Sabbath. What were they doing? What, what was the big violation of the Sabbath? Well, the, the, the commandment said, you shall not work on the Sabbath day. And harvesting a crop would be considered working. That's for sure. But these guys were just picking heads of grain as they were walking through the field and rubbing it in their hand and then throwing it in their mouth and chewing on it. They interpreted that as a violation of you shall not work on the Sabbath day. And they wanted to condemn the disciples over that. You see, this is where religion goes. The, the rabbis, uh, the ones who wrote the 40 chapters, I mean, these guys were like as OCD as you can get. You know, they were just... I mean, it's, you know, it's beyond belief, the, the, the things that they came up with. And even to this very day, the Orthodox Jews are under bondage to these um, extravagant interpretations of, of what it means not to violate the Sabbath. It, it's quite a, a sad thing that it's come all the way down. But what does Jesus do? Well, he points them to, um, to David. 
He says to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest, and also gave some to those who were with him. So Jesus, just as the way he always does, he just points them back to the scripture. So you're, you're condemning these guys? Well, let, let's talk about David. What did he do? The showbread was technically, it was there for the priest. And if you weren't a priest, you weren't supposed to eat it. But what Jesus goes on to say is something that they forgot, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God gave the Sabbath to bless men, not to bring them under a curse. But these guys had completely flipped it around the other way. What Jesus is saying is God's concerned more about people than he is about these rules. And, and whenever you get into a situation where you're more concerned about rules than you are about people, you know you're on the wrong side of things with Jesus. Jesus is, is always more concerned about the person. And then he says to them, finally, similar to what he said earlier when he said the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he says, therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. You know, Jesus is really saying this. He's saying, you know what? Don't worry about it, guys. I created the Sabbath and they're all right. They, uh, they're not, that's not bothering me what they're doing. <laughs> I'm okay with it. I'm the author of the Sabbath. And, and of course he was. Now, in all of these things, this is what we need to remember Mercy, grace, joy, freedom, these are what the gospel is about. And, and just this, the picture here is a beautiful picture. The picture of, of the disciples, they're going through the grain fields and they're having conversation with Jesus and they're basically just enjoying the presence of the Lord and the goodness of God, and the creation of God. And they're completely innocent. But these other guys see them as guilty of, of, of violating God's command. And, and that's the two different pictures. There, there's the one that, that's always going to give the impression that we are somehow offending God, that we are somehow... Uh, you know, not pleasing him, you know, and sometimes even in the church and sometimes even pastors are guilty. And I have certainly been guilty of it in the past where you, you know, you're, you're always leaving people with the impression that somehow they're just, you know, falling short of pleasing God, that there's somehow always, you know, something that, that's there that um, ha has caused us to just expect not the blessing of God, but to expect the opposite. And, and, and that is something that we have to guard against because that's what the Pharisees did. They, they took the goodness of God and, and the blessing of God that was revealed in the scriptures and they turned it into something that just oppressed and caused people's lives to be miserable. You know, I was just in Ireland last week, and, and you know, there's been uh, quite, a, 
quite a revolt in Ireland against the Roman Catholic Church, and you probably heard the Pope recently visited there, and uh, compared to his visit back in the 80s, you know, where almost the whole country came to see him, there were a very small handful of people, and, you know, they they pretty much just publicly stated, we we have rejected our, our history, our historical connection to the church and all of that, and of course, for many, that's seen as a very negative thing. But you know, quite frankly and honestly, the people have lived under a, a severe burden. The church has put a, a heavy burden on them for all of these centuries. I, I can kind of understand why they are saying, man, we're, we're just going to enjoy this freedom. Forget that. But here's the sad thing. The sad thing is that they interpret what they had as the gospel. But it wasn't the gospel. It was a man-made version of the gospel. It was a gospel that looked more like what the Pharisees were doing than what Jesus was doing. And again, this is a problem. It's not limited to Roman Catholicism. This is a problem across the board in the church. We have to be very, very careful to properly represent Christ and to properly represent who he is and, and what he's like. And of course, if we've experienced that grace, we're going to be much more likely to share it with others. But if we've fallen into some kind of a religious thing where it's all about the rules and proving ourselves and trying, uh, you know, to, to be more pleasing to God through uh, some legalistic type of a thing, we're missing out on the joy and the blessing of the gospel, and we're misrepresenting who Christ really is. So God help us. Uh, to, to receive the, the mercy and the grace and to walk in the joy and in the freedom. Uh, this past week, I read a, a book that I've been wanting to read for a while. It's, it's recently just come out, but it's written by a young lady named Jackie Hill Perry. Uh, she's a hip-hop artist, and, uh, but she's got a really wonderful story about God's mercy upon her life. The book is called Gay Girl, Good God, and she wrote about her... Um, take on being a Christian before she met Jesus. And, and listen to what she said, because I think it's very uh, apropos to what we're talking about today. She said this. She said, Christianity seemed to be a religion of just duty. I'd met so many disciples who preached more of sin than joy, whose eyes were stuck in a constant state of solemnity, solemnity, I can't pronounce that word for some reason in public. I can do it privately, but I can't do it in public. <laughs> solemnity. I got it. Clenched teeth. A constant state of solemnity. <laughs> that word. Uh, clenched teeth and an endless fascination with holiness. Why hadn't they ever mentioned the place of happiness or the place that happiness had within righteousness or how the taking up of the cross would be a practice of obtaining delight? 
delight in all that God is. Even their Savior, she's looking at them from a distance outside, even their Savior had this kind of joy in mind as he endured the cross. So why hadn't they set their focus on him? I just wonder if they would have told me about the beauty of God just as much, if not more, than they told me about the horridness of hell if I would have burned my idols at a faster pace. Wow. That's pretty powerful. But that, that's what we're talking about here. You see, because the main components of our faith or the main manifestations or the main experience are mercy and grace and joy and freedom and peace. That, that's what it is. But how is it that so often we, we present it in a way that doesn't look like that at all? Now, some would say, well, wait a second, you know, you're leaving out holiness. No, I'm not leaving out holiness. But what I am going to say is be careful about how you interpret holiness. See, because your idea of holiness might not really be accurate. Because guess what? The holiest man that ever lived was Jesus Christ. And these men thought he was unholy. Because he didn't keep their rules. He didn't do it the way they thought he should do it. So they marked him as a blasphemer. They marked him as an imposter. They marked him as an unholy person. The most holy person that ever lived, they said, oh, he's not holy at all. So let's be careful how we define holiness because we can be way off the mark. Grace, mercy, joy, Freedom, love, kindness, all of these things, these are manifestations of holiness. And of course, as you're following the Lord, he is working in us that, that purity and those kinds of things. But um, he invites us to come to him just as we are. And when we come to him just as we are, he takes on the obligation of cleaning up our lives and transforming us. And he's got a lot more patience than we do with each other. He's got a lot more grace than we have for each other. And we need to learn that. Because only as we learn it will we then be able to more effectively impact other people for the gospel. Because they will, there's, the, there's the attraction that will be there because of the love that they see. So in closing, going back to Jesus referencing here the new wine. No one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the wine... New wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled, the wineskins are ruined, but new wine must be put into new wineskins. You see, even as we look for God to work among us, we need to realize that it will look different than it might have looked before. This is a mistake that is made over and over and over again in the history of the church. So over and over again, this mistake is made. God does work in a generation, and it's wonderful, and it's perfect, and of course, it fits because God does it, and 
then as we long for a work in the next generation, we want to tie it back to what, was, what happened in the previous generation. And we want to make that the standard, and we want to say that unless it's conforming exactly to what it was back then, then this can't be of God. This is happening right now. This is happening right now. I know people who just, you know, they're so tied to the past that they, God's working right before their eyes, but they can't see it because it's not conforming to what it was back then. But it's never going to conform to that because God is moving from generation to generation and he's working according to what needs to be at that time and place in history. And he's bringing new wine. You know, wine in the Bible, of course, there's negative references to wine in the Bible, but there's also plenty of positive references to wine in the Bible. And do you know that wine is used in scripture as a symbol of joy? So what am I saying? I am saying this, that the new wine is going to be marked by joy. Because the, the, the Holy Spirit brings joy into our lives. And so when we look for God to move in our generation, let's not be tied to some idea of how God has to do it. Let, let's recognize that uh, you know, it is possible to have God working right before your eyes and to completely miss it that's what happened with the Pharisees. God was right in front of them, standing there, literally, in the flesh, and they couldn't see him. He was doing things that nobody else had done, but they couldn't see that it was God who was doing it because of their, their prejudice and because they were so tied to their vision of the past. But Jesus said, new wine must be put into new wineskins. And so as we look for a fresh work of God in our day and in our time, and as we seek that out and as we pray for that, let's just remember, the Lord's going to do something fresh and, yes, new. It will be different. It will have similarities because it's the work of God, but it will have distinctions as well. It will have what what it needs to have, the mark that it needs to have for this time and this place. And so God help us. And then finally, if mercy and grace and joy and freedom have not been your experience as a Christian, then something's not something's not right in your experience. And today, you can just yield to that work of God's grace and it, that he's, he's offering to you and, and receive that for yourself and then to share with others. Those are the marks of the gospel impacting a person's life Mercy, grace, joy, freedom, and yes, holiness is all a part of that. It, it all works together. It's not one or the other. It's all together. 
And you know, the older I get, the longer I go in life here, man, I just realize I lived so many years of my Christian life in, in bondage to it just things I put on myself, burdens I put on myself. God wasn't putting those burdens on me. And I just would go around under this heavy thing of, man, you know, the Lord's really weighing me down with these things. And then I was in turn imparting that to others, putting people in bondage to man-made rules and obligations. But I want to live in that picture there with those disciples. We're just hanging out with Jesus, walking through the grain fields, plucking the heads of grain, just having a great time experiencing his love, being so thankful, or being at that party with Matthew and those people, man, just listening to Jesus and watching his spirit take people's lives like Levi, take them from tax collector and sinner to apostle and prophet. He does that. He's still doing that. And remember this, Matthew himself is the embodiment of the gospel. Lord, thank you that this beautiful picture of how you called this man who had been written off by the religious elite of his generation. Lord, how you called him to follow you and you made him a disciple. You made him an apostle. Lord, and then later you would use him by your spirit to pen the gospel that we call the gospel of Matthew. How amazing. And Lord, thank you that you, you just do that from time uh, to time and, and generation to generation. And Lord, there's a million stories that are just like this one. And that's what you're doing today. So Lord, help us to, to get that. Help us to, to see that. Help us to understand that. Help us to live free lives like you intended. Help us to live joyful lives. Help us, Lord, to receive mercy and grace and to dispense mercy and grace. And Lord, I pray for anyone today that maybe has had just the wrong idea about what it is to be a follower of Jesus. Maybe they've thought and heard more about the hordes of hell than the joy of salvation. May they receive your good gift of eternal life through trusting in Christ today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.